Book One, Chapters Seven and Eight of the Blue Lagoon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. The Blue Lagoon by H. De Vere Stackpole. Chapter Seven, The Story of the Pig and the Billy Goat. Every hour or so, Mister Button would shake his lethargy off and rise and look round for seagulls but the prospect was sailless as the prehistoric sea, wingless, voiceless. When Dick would fret now and then, the old sailor would always devise some means of amusing him. He made him fishing-tackle out of a bent pin and some small twine that happened to be in the boat, and told him to fish for pinkeens, and Dick, with the pathetic faith of childhood, fished. Then. He told them things. He had spent a year at Deal long ago, where a cousin of his was married to a boatman. Mr. Button had put in a year as a longshoreman at Deal, and he had got a great deal to tell of his cousin and her husband, and more especially of one Hannah. Hannah was his cousin's baby, a most marvellous child, who was born with its buck teeth fully developed and whose first unnatural act on entering the world was to make a snap at the doctor. "'Hung on to his fist like a bulldog, and him bawling murder!' "'Mrs. James,' said Emmeline, referring to a Boston acquaintance, "'had a little baby, and it was pink.' "'Aye, aye,' said Paddy. "'They're mostly pink to start with, but they fade when they're washed.' It had no teeth," said Emmeline, for I put my finger in to see. The doctor brought it in in a bag," put in Dick, who was still steadily fishing, dug it out of a cabbage patch, and I got a trowel and dug all our cabbage patch up, but there weren't any babies, but there were no end of worms. I wish I had a baby," said Emmeline and I wouldn't send it back to the cabbage patch." "'The doctor,' explained Dick, "'took it back and planted it again, and Mrs. James cried when I asked her, and Daddy said it was put back to grow and turn into an angel.' "'Angels have wings,' said Emmeline, dreamily. "'And,' pursued Dick, "'I told Cook, and she said to Jane, that Daddy was always stuffing children up with something or another, and I asked Daddy to let me see him stuffing up a child, and Daddy said Cook would have to go away for saying that, and she went away next day. She had three big trunks and a box for her bonnet," said Emmeline, with a far-away look, as she recalled the incident. And the cabman asked her hadn't she any more trunks to put on his cab? And hadn't she forgot the parrot-cage?" said Dick. "'I wish I had a parrot in a cage,' murmured Emmeline, moving slightly so as to get more in the shadow of the sail. "'And what in the world would you be doing with a parrot in a cage?' asked Mr. Button. "'I'd let it out,' replied Emmeline. "'Speaking about letting parrots out of cages, I remember me grandfather had an old pig," said Paddy. They were all talking seriously together, like equals. 
I was a spalpeen no bigger than the height of me knee, and I'd go down to the sty daw, and he'd come to the door and grunt and blow with his nose under it, and I'd grunt back to vex him and hammer with me fist on it, and shout, Hello there, hello there, and hello to you, he'd say, speaking the pig's language. Let me out, he'd say, and I'd give yous a silver shillin. Pass it under the door, I'd answer him, then he'd stick the snout of him under the door, and I'd hit it a clip with a stick, and he'd yell, Mother Irish, and me mother had come and baste me, and well I deserved it. Well, one day I opened the sty door, and out he bolted, and away and beyond, over the hill and hollow he goes, till he gets to the edge of the cliff overlooking the sea, and there he meets a billy goat, and he and the billy goat has a division of opinion. Away with yous, says the billy goat. Away with yourself, says he. Who's you talking to? says t'other. Yourself, says he. Who stole the eggs? says the billy goat. Ax your old grandmother, says the pig. Ax me old witch mother, says the billy goat. Oh, ax me, and before he could complete the sentence, ram blam the old billy goat butts him in the chest and away goes to both of them, whirling into the sea below. Then me old grandfather comes out, and collars me by the scruff, and into the sty with you, says he, and into the sty I went, and there they kept me for a fortnight, on bran mash and skim milk, and well I deserved it. They dined somewhere about eleven o'clock, and at noon Paddy unstepped the mast, and made a sort of little tent or awning with the sail in the bow of the boat to protect the children from the rays of the vertical sun. Then he took his place in the bottom of the boat, in the stern, stuck Dick's straw hat over his face to preserve it from the sun, kicked about a bit to get in a comfortable position, and fell asleep. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 S H E N A N D O A H. Shenandoah. He had slept an hour or more when he was brought to his senses by a thin and prolonged shriek. It was Emmeline in a nightmare, or more properly, a daymare, brought on by a meal of sardines and the haunting memory of the gibbly gobblums. When she was shaken, it always took a considerable time to bring her to from these seizures, and comforted, the mast was re-stepped. As Mr. Button stood with his hand on the spar looking round him before going aft with the sheet, an object struck his eye some three miles ahead—objects, rather, for they were the masts and spars of a small ship rising from the water. Not a vestige of a sail just the naked spars. It might have been a couple of old skeleton trees jutting out of the water, for all a landsman could have told. He stared at this sight for twenty or thirty seconds without speaking, his head projected like the head of a tortoise. Then he gave a wild, Hurroo! What is it, Paddy? asked Dick. Hurroo! replied Button. Ship ahoy! Ship ahoy! Lie to till I be after boardin' ye. 
Sure they are lying to, divil a rag of canvas on her. Are they asleep or dreaming? Here, Dick, let me get aft with the sheet. The wind'll take us up to her quicker than we'll row. He crawled aft and took the tiller. The breeze took the sail, and the boat forged ahead. "'Is it Daddy's ship?' asked Dick, who was almost as excited as his friend. "'I dunno. We'll see when we fetch her.' "'Shall we go on her, Mr. Button?' asked Emmeline. "'Aye, we will, honey.' Emmeline bent down, and, fetching her parcel from under the seat, held it on her lap. As they drew nearer, the outlines of the ship became more apparent. She was a small brig with stumped topmasts. From the spars a few rags of canvas fluttered. It was apparent soon to the old sailor's eye what was amiss with her. "'She's derelict, bad cess to her,' he muttered. "'Derelict and done for, just me luck.' "'I can't see any people on the ship,' cried Dick, who had crept forward to the bow. Daddy's not there." The old sailor let the boat off a point or two, so as to get a view of the brig more fully. When they were within twenty cables' lengths or so, he unstepped the mast and took to the sculls. The little brig floated very low on the water, and presented a mournful enough appearance, her running rigging all slack, shreds of canvas flapping at the yards, and no boats hanging at the davits. It was easy enough to see that she was a timber-ship, and that she had started a butt, flooded herself, and been abandoned. Paddy lay on his oars within a few strokes of her. She was floating as placidly as though she were in the harbour of San Francisco. The green water showed in her shadow, and in the green water waved the tropic weeds that were growing from her copper. Her paint was blistered and burnt absolutely, as though a hot iron had been passed over it, and over her taffrail hung a large rope whose end was lost to sight in the water. A few strokes brought them under the stern. The name of the ship was there in faded letters, also the port to which she belonged. Shenandoah, Martha's Vineyard. "'There's letters on her,' said Mr. Button but I can't make them out. I've no larnin." "'I can read,' said Dick. "'So can I,' murmured Emmeline. "'S-H-E-N-A-N-D-O-A-H,' spelt Dick. "'What's that?' inquired Paddy. "'I don't know,' replied Dick, rather downcastedly. "'And there you are!' cried the oarsman in a disgusted manner, pulling the boat round to the starboard side of the brig. "'They pretend to teach letters to children in schools, picking their eyes out with book-reading, and here's letters as big as me face, and they can't make hide nor tail of them. Be dashed to book-reading!' The brig had old-fashioned wide channels, regular platforms, and she floated so low in the water that they were scarcely a foot above the level of the dinghy. Mr. Button secured the boat by passing the painter through a channel-plate, then, with Emmeline and her parcel in his arms, or rather in one arm, he clambered over the channel and passed her over the rail on to the deck. 
Then it was Dick's turn, and the children stood waiting whilst the old sailor brought the beaker of water, the biscuit, and the tin stuff on board. It was a place to delight the heart of a boy, the deck of the Shenandoah. Forward, right from the main hatchway, it was laden with timber. Running rigging lay loose on the deck in coils, and nearly the whole of the quarter-deck was occupied by a deck-house. The place had a delightful smell of sea-beach, decaying wood, tar, and mystery. Bites of buntline and other ropes were dangling from above, only waiting to be swung from. A bell was hung, just forward of the foremast. In half a moment Dick was forward, hammering at the bell with a belaying pin he had picked up from the deck. Mr. Button shouted to him to desist. The sound of the bell jarred on his nerves. It sounded like a summons, and a summons on that deserted craft was quite out of place. Who knew what mightn't answer it in the way of the supernatural? Dick dropped the belaying pin and ran forward. He took the disengaged hand, and the three of them went aft to the door of the deck-house. The door was open, and they peeped in. The place had three windows on the starboard side, and through the windows the sun was shining in a mournful manner. There was a table in the middle of the place. A seat was pushed away from the table as if someone had risen in a hurry. On the table lay the remains of a meal, a teapot, two teacups, two plates. On one of the plates rested a fork with a bit of putrefying bacon upon it that someone had evidently been conveying to his mouth when something had happened. Near the teapot stood a tin of condensed milk, haggled open. Some old salt had been in the act of putting milk in his tea when the mysterious something had occurred. Never did a lot of dead things speak so eloquently as these things spoke. One could conjure it all up. The skipper, most likely, had finished his tea, and the mate was hard at work with his, when a leak had been discovered or some derelict had been run into, or whatever it was had happened, happened. One thing was evident, that since the abandonment of the brig she had experienced fine weather, else the things would not have been left standing so trimly on the table. Mr. Button and Dick entered the place to prosecute inquiries, but Emmeline remained at the door. The charm of the old brig appealed to her almost as much as to Dick, but she had a feeling about it quite unknown to him. A ship where no one was had about it suggestions of other things. She was afraid to enter the gloomy deck-house, and afraid to remain alone outside. She compromised matters by sitting down on the deck. Then she placed the small bundle beside her and hurriedly took the rag-doll from her pocket, into which it was stuffed head down, pulled its calico skirt from over its head, propped it up against the combing of the door, and told it not to be afraid. There was not much to be found in the deck-house, but aft of it were two small cabins like rabbit-hutches, once inhabited by the skipper and his mate. Here there were great findings in the way of rubbish old clothes, old boots, 
an old top-hat of that extraordinary pattern you may see in the streets of Pernambuco, immensely tall, and narrowing toward the brim, a telescope without a lens, a volume of Hoyt, a nautical almanac, a great bolt of striped flannel shirting, a box of fish-hooks, and in one corner, glorious find, a coil of what seemed to be ten yards or so of black rope. "'Bucky, Bigara!' shouted Pat, seizing upon his treasure. It was pigtail. You may see coils of it in the tobacconist windows of seaport towns. A pipe full of it would make a hippopotamus vomit, yet old sailors chew it and smoke it and revel in it. "'We'll bring all the lot of the things out on deck, and see what's worth keeping and what's worth leaving," said Mr. Button taking an immense armful of the old truck, whilst Dick, carrying the top hat, upon which he had instantly seized as his own special booty, led the way. "'M!' shouted Dick, as he emerged from the doorway. "'See what I've got!' He popped the awful-looking structure over his head. It went right down to his shoulders. Emmeline gave a shriek. "'It smells funny!' said Dick, taking it off and applying his nose to the inside of it. "'Smells like an old hair-brush. Here, you try it on.' Emmeline scrambled away as far as she could till she reached the starboard bulwarks, where she sat in the scupper, breathless and speechless and wide-eyed. She was always dumb when frightened, unless it were a nightmare or a very sudden shock and this hat suddenly seen half-covering Dick frightened her out of her wits. Besides, it was a black thing, and she hated black things—black cats, black horses, worst of all, black dogs. She had once seen a hearse in the streets of Boston—an old-time hearse with black plumes, trappings, and all complete. The sight had nearly given her a fit though she did not know in the least the meaning of it. Meanwhile Mr. Button was conveying armful after armful of stuff on deck. When the heap was complete he sat down beside it in the glorious afternoon sunshine and lit his pipe. He had searched neither for food or water as yet, content with the treasure God had given him. For the moment the material things of life were forgotten. And indeed, if he had searched, he would have found only half a sack of potatoes in the caboose, for the lazarette was awash, and the water in the scuttle-butt was stinking. Emmeline, seeing what was in progress, crept up, Dick promising not to put the hat on her, and they all sat round the pile. "'Them pair of brogues,' said the old man, holding a pair of old boots up for inspection like an auctioneer would fetch half a dollar any day in the week, in any seaport in the world. Put them beside you, Dick, and lay hold of this pair of breeches by the ends of them. Stretch em. The trousers were stretched out, examined, and approved of, and laid beside the boots. "'Here's a telescope with one eye shut,' said Mr. Button, examining the broken telescope, and putting it in and out like a concertina. Stick it beside the brogues. It may come in handy for something. Here's a book," tossing the nautical almanac to the boy, 
Tell me what it says." Dick examined the pages of figures hopelessly. "'I can't read em said Dick. "'It's numbers.' "'Buzz it overboard,' said Mr. Button. Dick did what he was told joyfully, and the proceedings resumed. He tried on the tall hat, and the children laughed. On her old friend's head the thing ceased to have terror for Emmeline. She had two methods of laughing. The angelic smile before mentioned, a rare thing, and almost as rare, a laugh in which she showed her little white teeth while she pressed her hands together, the left one tight shut and the right clasped over it. He put the hat on one side and continued the sorting, searching all the pockets of the clothes and finding nothing. When he had arranged what to keep, they flung the rest overboard and the valuables were conveyed to the captain's cabin, there to remain till wanted. Then the idea that food might turn up useful as well as old clothes in their present condition struck the imaginative mind of Mr. Button, and he proceeded to search. The lazarette was simply a cistern full of sea-water. What else it might contain, and not being a diver, he could not say. In the copper of the caboose lay a great lump of putrefying pork, or meat of some sort. The harness cast contained nothing except huge crystals of salt. All meat had been taken away. Still the provisions and water brought on board from the dinghy would be sufficient to last them some ten days or so, and in the course of ten days a lot of things might happen. Mr. Button leaned over the side. The dinghy was nestling beside the brig, like a duckling beside a duck. The broad channel might have been likened to the duck's wing half extended. He got on the channel to see if the painter was safely attached. Having made all secure, he climbed slowly up the main-yard arm and looked round upon the sea. End of chapter 8